Imagine being forced out of your home, told that you have to pack whatever you can into a single suitcase, and leave the only country you've known your entire life. Such was the case for many Jews living in Germany and Austria on the eve of World War II. With the Nazi regime's rise to power in 1933, rampant anti-Semitism and racial purity laws quickly went into effect, which naturally affected the two nations' Jewish populations, as well as countless other political, ethnic, and religious groups. With nowhere else to turn, word soon spread throughout these Jewish communities of a Chinese consul based in the Austrian capital of Vienna, who was issuing exit visas to the Chinese port city of Shanghai, half a world away. Desperate to escape the mounting tensions against them, these Jews seized the opportunity and were soon finding themselves aboard steamships en route to the Far East, where an uncertain future awaited them. What was life in Shanghai like for these refugees? How did this community come into being? And what happened to these Jews after the war ended? Join me as we endeavor to answer these and other questions on this episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. By the dawn of the 20th century, Jews have been living throughout the German-speaking world for about a millennium. This is attested to in Yiddish-language texts, the first of which appeared in Germany in the 11th and 12th centuries. Having evolved from Old High German and incorporating Hebrew, Aramaic, and Slavic loanwords, Yiddish is one of the largest Jewish languages still spoken, after modern Hebrew. By the 20th century, however, these Jews had more or less been fully assimilated into both German and Austrian cultures. Having lifted themselves out of the poverty with which their medieval ancestors had been plagued, they rose to prominence in the ensuing centuries in various sectors of society, including the sciences, the arts, and business. They had long abandoned their Yiddish-speaking heritage, preferring instead to speak German, and became preeminent citizens in the process. They fought for Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the Great War, World War I, and lived and worked alongside their non-Jewish compatriots. In short, the late 19th and early 20th centuries were a golden age of sorts for them, but by the 1930s, the first signs of tarnish were beginning to show. In 1933, Adolf Hitler came to power as Chancellor of Germany. From the start, he touted the virtues of a quote-unquote pure German race, and vowed to wipe out all others from society. These undesirables were Jews, the Romani, communists, homosexuals, Poles, and other such ethnic, political, and religious groups that were deemed a threat to the country's sovereignty. But the rampant anti-Semitism reached a fever pitch on November 9, 1938, when Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, saw the destruction of Jewish businesses throughout Germany. Realizing what was at stake if they remained where they were, word soon spread throughout the German and Austrian Jewish communities of a Chinese consul in Vienna, who was granting exit visas to all those who needed to flee Nazi persecution. The consul in question was Ho Fangshan, a Chinese diplomat who had been appointed to the position of first secretary of the Chinese legation in Vienna the year prior. When he saw the dangers that were befalling the Jews in both Germany and Austria, he began issuing visas for humanitarian reasons to the only place he could, Shanghai, a cosmopolitan port city which, at the time, was partly under the jurisdiction of the Republic of China. Though one didn't need a visa to enter Shanghai in those days, a person did need one to leave Germany or Austria. This helped facilitate the Jews' exit from the two countries, at which time they were sent to Genova in northwestern Italy, where they would disembark by steamship on a three-week journey to the Far East. For most of these refugees, who'd never known any other place outside their immediate spheres of influence in German or Austrian cities, Shanghai was as remote and distant as the moon, a mysterious and exotic place they'd read about in books or heard of in stories told by sailors. As such, they felt their fates and futures were uncertain, though they were grateful simply to escape the turbulence that surely would have continued had they stayed put. 
By the time these German and Austrian Jewish refugees arrived in the Chinese port city, Shanghai already had a sizable Jewish presence. Though the Jews escaping Nazism were Ashkenazi, that is, Central or Eastern European in origin, the community that was based in Shanghai hailed from such far-flung places as Baghdad in Iraq and Mumbai in India. They had also been in China for quite some time, having established themselves in the 18th and 19th centuries as merchants and businessmen, some of whom had dabbled in the city's notorious criminal underworld, particularly in the dealing of opium. They lived in extravagant wealth and luxury, and, sad to say, looked down on the poor and downtrodden Ashkenazi Jewish refugees who seemed to be arriving by the boatload with each passing day. But not all of them showed disdain towards these new arrivals. One of the most powerful families in Shanghai at the time, the Kaduris, knew something had to be done to help them. Though he and his ancestors had called China home for several generations, Eli Kaduri, the patriarch, considered himself, quote, a man without a country, unquote. Not surprisingly, he was also a fervent Zionist, that is, someone who supported the idea of establishing a Jewish nation in their ancestral homeland, what's now present-day Israel, and therefore felt it his duty to extend a helping hand to his Ashkenazi brethren who were being persecuted by the Nazis. But the Kaduris couldn't do it alone. Setting aside their differences, they turned to their greatest business rival and fellow Baghdadi Jews, the Sassoon family, and urged them to assist the German and Austrian Jews who now sought refuge in Shanghai. Victor Sassoon, a renowned playboy and the head of a vast business empire, pooled his assets and set aside some of his own money, as well as that he gathered from fundraisers in both Britain and the United States, to set aside a community for the refugees in the Hongkyo district of the city. With the area secured, the newly arrived migrants settled into their new home. Life in Hongkyo was far from glamorous or comfortable. As much of the city was overcrowded as it was, this district in particular, which was a part of Shanghai's slums, was a series of twisting alleys and labyrinthine apartment buildings in which several family members had to live practically on top of one another. Needless to say, being from more affluent families in their home countries, they weren't used to such conditions. The sanitation was atrocious, with a man showing up daily with a big wagon into which he'd throw the neighborhood's combined human waste. Food was scarce, and what was available had to be split between family members. But it wasn't all bad at first. Despite the language barrier the German and Austrian Jews faced with their Chinese neighbors, the latter showed them a great deal of kindness and hospitality. The Chinese would often share their food with the refugees and welcome them into their homes and businesses. Their children would befriend and play with each other in the crowded streets. All the while, the Baghdadi Jews, particularly the Kadudi and Sassoon families, along with the aid of the American Jewish Joint Distribution Council, or JDC for short, continued to oversee the improvements of the refugees' living conditions. From such rough-and-tumble beginnings, however, the German and Austrian Jewish community in Shanghai flourished. Soon abandoning their reliance on the welfare that had been generously given to them, they transformed their squalid settlement into a thriving cultural hub. English-language schools opened as did learning institutions that promoted the study of the Torah, the Jewish holy book. Newly constructed synagogues were filled to capacity with parishioners every Shabbos, Sabbath in Yiddish, and German-language newspapers reported the news of the world. Under such dire circumstances, the human spirit needed to be nourished as well. This problem was solved with the opening of theaters and cabarets, which provided entertainment for the European Jewish masses. Sports teams competed against one another, and cafes, restaurants, and confectioners offered the refugees an authentic taste of home. For a time, the German and Austrian Jewish community in Shanghai thrived, an unlikely but veritable microcosm in the Far East. Though they were far enough away from the horrors of Nazi Germany, they weren't impervious to the conflict between China and Japan. In fact, Japan had seized part of Shanghai in November of 1937, and had clashed with the Chinese ever since. 
As such, it wasn't unusual for these Jewish refugees to cross paths with armed Japanese soldiers whenever they went into town. But on December 7, 1941, everything changed. With the attack on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in the then-U.S. territory of Hawaii, the Japanese extended their influence over the port city. As such, because of their alliance with Germany, Shanghai's wealthy Jewish residents, including the Kaduri and Sassoon families, were interned. To make matters worse, American charitable funding ceased, plunging the refugee community into a state of chaos. Unemployment and inflation soared. In a last-ditch effort, a liaison with the JDC, Laura Margulis, implored the Japanese authorities for permission to resume her fundraising efforts, but was denied. The refugees were once again faced with an uncertain future, and feared what would become of the little enclave they had worked so hard to build. Little did they suspect that the Nazis had a trick up their sleeve. Josef Meisinger, better known as the Butcher of Warsaw for his hard stance and brutality against the Polish and Polish Jews, was appointed as a liaison for the Gestapo at the German embassy in Tokyo in 1941. By the following year, his responsibilities fell upon the German and Austrian community of Shanghai, to which he was tasked by Heinrich Himmler himself, the notorious architect of the Holocaust, to retrieve them and see to their demise. As the Japanese didn't historically carry an aversion to the Jewish people, this took some convincing and calculation on Meisinger's part. Using their fear of espionage to his advantage, he swore that the Jews were anti-Nazi, which naturally made them anti-Japanese as well, seeing as the two countries made up two-thirds of the Axis powers at the time. Meisinger then compiled a list of the 200,000-some German and Austrian Jews who had fled to Shanghai and sent it to the Japanese Home Ministry, who in turn forwarded to the Kempeitai, the military police for the Imperial Japanese Army at the end of 1942. If the Nazis were good at anything, it was record-keeping, so you can imagine how detailed this infamous list was. Not only did it contain the names of all Jews holding a German passport in Japan, but it stressed in particular the high, quote-unquote, risk potential of the Shanghai Enclave, with Meisinger's assertions that they would turn on their Japanese overlords in a heartbeat. With all this in mind, the Japanese authorities in the bustling port city established a ghetto to which the refugees would all be confined. For his efforts, Meisinger was promoted to Colonel of Police by the Third Reich, and on November 15th, 19 1942, the plan for a restricted ghetto was approved by the Japanese authorities. Thus, the Shanghai Ghetto was born. On February 18, 1943, the Japanese declared a, quote, designated area for stateless refugees, unquote, in the very same Honkyo neighborhood where the German and Austrian Jews had set up shop over four years prior. They were ordered to vacate their residences and move their possessions into the three-fourths square mile, 1.94 square kilometer area by May 18th, a full three months after the decree. In total, some 8,000 Jews were crammed into this tiny ghetto, living in group homes with several other families that they affectionately referred to as Heime, from the German word for homes. The Austrian Jews specifically knew it by another name, Kleine Wien, or Little Vienna in German. As Dr. David Kranzler notes in his book, Japanese, Nazis, and Jews, the Jewish Refugee Community in Shanghai, Thus, about half of the approximately 16,000 refugees who had overcome great obstacles and had found a means of livelihood and residence outside the designated area were forced to leave their homes and businesses for a second time and to relocate into a crowded, squalid area less than one square mile with its own population of an estimated 100,000 Chinese and 8,000 refugees. But unlike the ghettos that the Nazis had established in Poland and other such countries they conquered, the Shanghai ghetto was not bordered by barbed wire or fencing of any sort. It was, however, patrolled by armed guards with a curfew instated for its residents to follow, and which was strictly enforced. Food was rationed, and passes were necessary for anyone to leave and return to the ghetto. For about two years, this was the life these Jewish refugees faced. 
Though no picnic by any stretch of the imagination, they weren't being assaulted or slaughtered on a daily basis like their fellow Jews in Europe. There was, of course, a great deal of confusion and uncertainty on their end, as their fate seemed to hang in the balance. Would their Japanese overlords turn them over to the Nazis? There was no telling what they'd do or what would happen. The first year passed without any major incidents, but in 1944, the first Allied air raids leveled parts of the city. As the Honkyo district didn't have bomb shelters due to its water table being too close to the surface, all the refugees could do was simply duck and cover where they stood, and pray that the structure in or around which they'd hid wouldn't be targeted. Miraculously, the Honkyo district managed to avoid any direct hits for the better part of a year. But that would change on July 17, 1945, when a bombardment killed 38 refugees and hundreds of Chinese civilians. The aerial bombardments brought a whole new wave of anxiety onto the German and Austrian Jews. Though an unintentional target, their ghetto was directly in the line of fire. As such, several families had to improvise shelters using whatever materials were available. One family managed to escape with only shaken nerves after their makeshift shelter. A bed with an extra mattress supported by twin desks protected them from collapsed walls. But even amidst all the chaos and mayhem, the refugees still managed to help one another and those around them. In the final days of the war, a resistance movement had emerged within the Shanghai ghetto. Its intent was to gain vital information to pass on to downed Allied air crews, which it did, giving the U.S. military in the region the upper hand against the Japanese. The dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th, 1945, respectively, brought about the official end of World War II. The Japanese surrendered. A little under a month later, on September 3rd, the Shanghai ghetto was liberated by American troops. At last, the city's German and Austrian Jews were free, though they were faced with yet another question, perhaps the biggest and most important of all since fleeing their original homelands. Now what? Most, if not all, of these refugees saw Shanghai as a sort of metaphorical waiting room, a stepping stone that, should they survive, would serve as the disembarkation point to starting over elsewhere. Some went to Australia. Others, upon making the acquaintance of their American liberators, immigrated to the United States, settling in cities along the West Coast such as Los Angeles and San Francisco, or venturing all the way to the other side of the country to New York or Boston. There were even a handful who went to Mexico and South America. Wherever they chose to roam, they carried the experiences they'd gained in Shanghai with them, never forgetting the squalid conditions in which they'd lived, all while remembering the kindness and hospitality of their Chinese neighbors. Today, the Jewish presence in Shanghai is minimal to non-existent. Though the city remains one of the busiest and most cosmopolitan in all of Asia, its Jewish population has moved on. But the echoes and traces of their presence are all around, particularly in the Hongkyo district that they called home for a good seven years. In 1992, with the establishment of diplomatic relations between Israel and China, the relationship between the Jewish people and Shanghai has been recognized in the form of various monuments, plaques, and memorials dedicated to promoting the rich history of the refugee community that once called the port city home. In addition, in 2001, the Yad Vashem Museum in Israel, which preserves the memory of the Holocaust, inducted the Chinese consul Ho Feng Shan into its Righteous Among Nations monument, a memorial dedicated to those people, regardless of nationality, race, or religion, who aided the Jews during the rise of Nazism and throughout World War II. For a place that was originally deemed to be temporary for the German and Austrian Jewish refugees, it has become the permanent home of their history, one that won't fade so long as humanity endures. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode enlightening and interesting. I myself had never heard of the German and Austrian Jewish enclave in the Far East until relatively recently, but theirs is a story that needs to be told. A forgotten chapter of both the World War II and Holocaust stories that should be kept alive for posterity's sake. Now more than ever, the promotion of history is an important undertaking. With so much of it being challenged or erased outright, I consider it my duty to keep it alive, as we can learn much from the past. 
that being said, if you enjoyed this and all my previous episodes, please consider supporting me monthly. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click that support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget and monetary situation. Listening and sharing help in big ways too, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next time as we take a look at one of the most disastrous yet bravest campaigns of World War I, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.